In the final week of Christ's life, he was acknowledged by believers as their king, and they worshiped him as he rode through the streets of Jerusalem. Throughout his ministry, Jesus saw beyond the insignificant and often destructive labels of society, and even today sees each of us not just for who we are, but for who we strive to become. I invite you to join us in our study today and encourage each of us to request divine understanding that the Spirit may teach us individually and specifically. Welcome to Come Follow Up. The role that Jesus Christ plays in my life is my best friend. The role that Jesus Christ plays in my life is as my rock and as my light. He's always there for me and I know that I can always count on Him. I believe in Christ because I have felt Him in my life. He's the foundation um, by which I try to make my decisions based on His teachings. And He's my light because I look to Him for hope and for peace and for guidance. And He lights my way and I try to follow Him. I have felt uh, His guidance and I know He's real because uh, that I believe that has not been able to come from anything else but from Christ. Welcome, everybody. My name is Ben Lomu, and I am your host. Our Gospel Scholar for today is Josh Matson. Josh is a scholar of the Bible and the Dead Sea Scrolls and a religious educator with seminaries and institutes of religion. He and his wife, Erin, are the parents of four children and live in Saratoga Springs, Utah. Welcome, Josh. It's wonderful to be here, Ben. And seated next to Josh is our special guest, Dr. Matt Gray. Dr. Gray is a professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He received a Master of Studies in Early Judaism from the University of Oxford and a PhD in Archaeology and History of Ancient Judaism. He lives in Springville, Utah, with his three kids and his wife, Mary. Matt, thanks for being here today. Thank you. It's great to be here. And we're also joined by our studio audience. Thanks for joining us today. And to each of you at home, we are so happy to have you with us for today's discussion. Please follow along and share your thoughts with us on any of our social media platforms. Today, we've selected two topics to discuss that relate to various passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These topics and discussions support and build upon the Come Follow Me resource developed and published by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The two topics we're going to discuss are first, Jesus Christ is my King, and second, the Lord judges not by the outward appearance, but by the desires of the heart. After exploring these two topics with our panel and studio audience, we'll let our studio audience go and dive deeper into the scriptures with Josh and Matt in footnotes. Okay, Josh, so as we dig into this first topic, Jesus Christ is my King, what sort of history or context do we need to understand specifically as this first topic relates to these chapters? Yeah, so Ben, at this point, we really hit the hinge point of the Gospels. So prior to this, in the Synoptics, which is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospels have kind of presented Jesus as starting in Galilee and moving towards Jerusalem. So there's this general flow, and now we're gonna get to the point where Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. Prior to this time, the Savior was a little bit reserved in having people talk about him as the Messiah, asking people not to talk about the miracles he had done or not to say to the general public what he had done, even though most of those people didn't listen. Mm -hmm. But now this is kind of the point where the savior comes and says, I'm going to reveal to all men who I really am. Okay. And so that includes this idea of kingship. I'm guessing it's all a matter of timing uh, with his mission and what he knows is happening. He's setting this up. 
to be a, a triumphal entry of really proclaiming who he is because there will be ramifications for this, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And we could we could actually use another word that applies with kingship. It's almost like this idea of a coronation, okay. right? Is that for him and his followers, they are able to let the world know what seems, especially in the synoptics, to have been kind of hidden. Okay. Matt, what can you add to this context or background? So there are actually four main components to the triumphal entry. There's a donkey, there's the garments, there's the palm branches, and then there's the shouts of Hosanna. Mm -hmm. And each one of these come from different episodes in the Old Testament that evoke images of kingship or victory over Israel's enemies and so forth. Uh, the donkey in particular comes from 1 Kings, where we read about the coronation of Solomon, how Solomon was set on a donkey as part of his coronation ritual to be proclaimed king over Israel. And so that donkey component of the triumphal entry is very much a deliberate tie back to the Old Testament image of Solomon riding on a donkey when he was coronated. So as we're talking about uh, this declaration that Jesus Christ is the king. In what ways do you acknowledge or proclaim Christ as your king today? Zaley? Well, I think one way that I can do that for myself is I can say my nightly prayers and read my scriptures, make sure that um, I know who I'm following and trying to show my love towards others is one way that I can show that. And Zaley, how do people that are around you without you, you know, saying it, how do they know that you follow Jesus Christ and that he's your king? Um, I think that I can start by showing kindness to others like Jesus would if he was still on the earth. That's great. I, I love that, how there are so many modern examples in which we can demonstrate and show, you know, our devotion to him. And I love how, you know, what Zaley was saying, it's not always a a vocal expression. It's just in our normal everyday acts of kindness. Matt, as you have dedicated so much of your life to studying the life of the Savior, what are some of the things that you do uh, to demonstrate and show or proclaim that Jesus is your King? Yeah, that, that's a really great question. And I love the answer that's already been given. I think it's really important to understand, first of all, what Jesus's kingship and what that kingdom of heaven that he proclaimed, what that actually stands for. Uh, and what are the main principles behind that? Things like compassion for the marginalized, uh, outreach mm -hmm. to the outcasts, uh, putting uh, inward uh, devotion ahead of outward expressions of righteousness, things that we'll talk about later mm -hmm. today. And so I think once we understand what that kingdom stands for, uh, I think that then the way we declare our allegiance to that kingdom is by letting those concepts and those principles guide the way we interact with others, our relationship with others. We're living right now in a very tribalistic, polarized moment in history. And uh, I think that remembering that above all things, above politics and social issues and so many other things that are uh, catching our attention right now, that the primary goal is to remember that ultimately it is about mm -hmm. the kingdom of God with Jesus at the head of that kingdom with those guiding principles. One of the other accounts or stories from, from these chapters kind of expresses this, a, a different type of proclamation uh, of Christ's kingship uh, with the anointing. Do you mind uh, walking us through that story a little bit and, and what do we learn from, from this particular uh, declaration? Sure. So in John chapter 12, we're told the story of Mary, uh, presumably the sister of Martha and Lazarus, who live in Bethany, a village on the east slope of the Mount of Olives, just not too far from Jerusalem. And Mary anoints Jesus with some very precious 
oil and ointments. And of course, the idea of an anointing is another part of the Old Testament kingship rituals of coronation. So the woman who anoints Jesus seems to be the first disciple to understand that not only is Jesus king, but that his kingship will come through his atoning sacrifice. And isn't it interesting in those accounts, there's a little bit of pushback from the disciples. So after this anointing uh, in John chapter 12, verse four, then saith one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which should betray him. Why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? This is a really interesting account that we have a named a disciple or apostle of Jesus Christ who doesn't recognize what Mary and John or the unnamed woman in the synoptics recognizes. To be fair to the others, the others uh, didn't understand either in the synoptic tradition, but exactly. John sends a single out Judas quite a bit. So oh, yeah, wow. Judas was the rat who had the bag. That's why he was, so it is interesting to note, but that is definitely a, a misunderstanding of the disciples. And this woman was the first to understand that and, important message. And it really does show, it takes a lot of humility to really understand, you know, what Mary or this unnamed woman is doing by anointing the savior. And, and as followers of Jesus Christ, it's extremely important that we understand who he is and what it takes to follow him. We had a, a question come in from one of our viewers that hits on this, and I would love to get some of your thoughts on it. Hi, friends. This is Camila from Chile. And as a result of my studies of Come Follow Me, I have a question for you. How can I be more humble to allow Jesus Christ, our Savior and King, to guide my life? so I can better follow the Spirit? It takes a lot of humility to really understand who Christ is and to allow the Spirit to guide our lives. What are some of your thoughts on how we can help Camilla answer her question? Well, I might start, one of the things that is pointed out in Matthew chapter 21 is after this, this Palm Sunday procession and the Savior's being proclaimed, there's an interesting verse here in verse 10. Matthew records, and when he was come into Jerusalem, all the city was moved saying, who is this? Now the Greek for moved here is probably better translated turmoil or stirred. But then look at verse 11, and the multitude said, this is Jesus, the prophet of Nazareth of Galilee. So one of the things I love about Camilla's question is she's saying, how can I be more humble? Sometimes being more humble is simply recognizing something's going on. Maybe there's some turmoil. Uh, maybe there's some uh, misunderstanding about a doctrine or a story. Mm -hmm. And one of the best things you can do is like those crowds, those multitudes in Jerusalem, ask about it. Be humble enough to not think, oh, I already know all this already, or I should know this already, and ask and find answers in that way. I, there's a beautiful quote by Ella Talmud talking about the actions of Mary and John, as she's named, and, and the anointing of Jesus. And he says, to anoint the head of a guest with ordinary oil was to do him honor. To anoint his feet also was to show unusual and signal regard. But the anointing of head and feet with spikenard and in such abundance was an act of reverential homage, rarely rendered even to kings. Mary's act was an expression of adoration. It was the fragrant outwelling of a heart overflowing with worship and affection. I just love the idea of, of what she is trying to demonstrate. You know, we've talked about some of the modern applications of, of this account with the triumphal entry. What are some of the things that, that you have done to, to show that love, that devotion to the Savior and, and some, more of the, some of the more private ways in your life? Uh, I'd say in my personal life, uh, I'm actually really blessed, as, as Josh is as well, uh, to be able to 
study scripture as a full-time pursuit. Mm -hmm. And so I actually thoroughly enjoy uh, not only spending time academically, but personally to study the scriptural texts, to study them in context, to better understand their language. And uh, I think this is inherent to the Latter-day Saint tradition. Uh, Joseph Smith always talked about uh, combining study and faith in our discipleship. Uh, and that's actually something that I've thoroughly enjoyed being able to do uh, as an academic who also happens to study the New Testament text and the New Testament world. And so I, I find a lot of those moments when I uh, get to see a little bit more clearly into how the world of Jesus worked or how that saying of Jesus functions in that particular gospel text. And, and so for me, uh, that combination of scholarship and faith uh, really allowed so many moments to, uh, to feel the spirit of worship and, and praise. Well, thank you both for sharing so much. I'm really excited to get back into this more footnotes and kind of go down, uh, talk about some of the more specifics of the triumphal entry, but thanks for sharing what you did today so far. And for the audience, you've been wonderful. Thank you so much as well. And for you at home, how do you show your love for God and for those around you? Share with us on Facebook and Instagram. I think oftentimes we have the tendency to judge each other because of comparison. I think that we judge each other because we want to kind of see where we stand or where we fall in the scheme of things. There's a story behind everybody, and you just can't go by the way they look. You have to give them a chance and get to know them. We can train ourselves to more righteously judge others by remembering that we're all children of God and that we uh, each have a great potential. I think when we give the benefit of the doubt, I like to people to give me that benefit of the doubt because I'm not perfect and I make mistakes and I wanna give the same to others. And I know that um, nobody's perfect and I have to give them the same leniency to, to them too. The second topic we're gonna to discuss is the Lord judges not by the outward appearance, but by the desires of the heart. Uh, Josh, do you mind explaining uh, where we get this title from uh, and then how it relates to some of the things we're gonna be talking about within these chapters. Yeah, absolutely. And I love our discussion so far. This phrase actually connects to David when Samuel, the prophet, goes to find a successor for Saul. Um, and so Samuel's going and looking, trying to find who should be the next king. And the Lord actually says to Samuel, but the Lord said unto Samuel, look not on his countenance or on the height of his stature, because I refused him. For the Lord seeth not as man seeth. For man looketh on the outward appearance, but the Lord looketh on the heart. Now, as it relates to our text, we actually have to rewind a little bit from the triumphal entry. And as we talked about, Jesus is traveling in the synoptics from the Galilee down to Jerusalem. And as he's coming, he's going to come down the Jordan River Valley and he's going to pass Jericho. And he's going to interact with people in Jericho before going into Jerusalem. And there's one individual among these who a lot of people judge because of his job and because of his position. Mm -hmm. But the Lord is going to interact with him because of his heart. So in Luke chapter 19, starting in verse one, and Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Verse two, and behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus, which was the chief among the publicans, and he was rich. And I, I found it interesting that they put that little line in there. Like here he is, he's chief among the publicans. He's a tax collector. Nobody wants to see the tax collector showing up. And I think it's important to note that why tax collectors were looked down upon mm -hmm. is because their profits were based on their markups on taxes. 
Okay. So if they came to your house and said, you owe $20 in taxes, they would need to then pay the government $15, but then they would get a pocket the five. Mm. And so a lot of people viewed them as these crooked mm. individuals who are trying to take advantage of others because outwardly that's what they appeared as. And, and you can see based off of what has been said about those that are rich that from a reader's perspective, you may make your own judgments by who's a case is by, oh, he's rich. I know where this story is going, right? Yeah. Yeah. And we think of the rich young ruler and mm -hmm. other experiences, but then verse three turns that on its head and he sought to see Jesus who he was and could not for the press because he was of little stature. Verse four, and he ran before and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him for he was to pass that way. He wanted to know Jesus. Mm -hmm. And I love how verse three there says that he came to see Jesus who he was. He wanted to know for himself who the savior was. And I think that that's a great application for all of us is no matter who we are, where we're at in life, do we have the same desire as Zacchaeus to see Jesus as he really is? That's really neat. Matt, anything you want to add to this story? No, just following the next verses after Josh. Verse 5, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him, and he said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must abide at your house. And Zacchaeus made haste, came down, received him joyfully, and then tells Jesus, I really have tried my best too take care of the poor and so forth. And Jesus just says, this day, verse nine, salvation has come to this house for as much as he is also a son of Abraham. So by all outward appearances, Zacchaeus did not seem positioned to be the hero of this story, but it turns out that his desires to uh, seek Jesus, the fact that he has been trying to take it, to use his privilege to reach out to others, uh, seems to have actually made him a, a figure worth, uh, worth celebrating. Very cool. Uh, can we jump to the uh, the cleansing and look at some of the events that take place there and how we can then use that to change ourselves for the better? So the very next story is Jesus going into the Temple Mount, which is this massive religious complex. And uh, when he comes up into the Temple Mount, he notes that a lot of the economic and market activity that typically occurred at the bottom of the Temple Mount had worked its way up to the top of the Temple Mount, probably to facilitate the needs of the thousands and thousands of pilgrims who are coming to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover. The Gospels themselves don't give a lot of detail into what motivated Jesus's cleansing of the temple, uh, but they do des describe that when Jesus saw this type of economic and market activity happening in the temple courtyards, that there was something about that that he felt needed to be criticized or condemned. Mm -hmm. And so the story goes that, in fact, I'm reading from now in Matthew chapter 21, verse 12. So Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple. And he overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. And as he's doing, he's shouting out saying, it is written. And he actually quotes two Old Testament passages here. First from Isaiah 56, my house should be called a house of prayer. And then the second quote is from Jeremiah chapter seven, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And so what Jesus seems to be saying, among other things, is that I find it completely unacceptable that those who are supposed to be administering God's house are actually benefiting from a temple economy that itself can exploit the lower classes who are the people that his kingdom is trying to defend and reach out to. But I think it continues that concept that Jesus cares more about what you are doing for other people than the outward expressions of righteousness and status mm -hmm. and prosperity. 
there's a lot that goes into that story that's worth unpacking. And as Matt was talking, he referenced that Jeremiah 7 scripture. It's fascinating that oftentimes when you quoted a scripture, you're also quoting the scripture story. And so if you go back to the context of Jeremiah 7, Jeremiah is rebuking the people because they're saying, we're pardoned in doing these things because we have a temple. Right. And so the savior evoking this imagery and using this quotation was saying, you think you're safe because you're coming to the temple or you're doing this outward, these outward ordinances and you're okay. But the savior is actually requoting Jeremiah and saying, that's not the case. And I think if you see it in that context, that it really helps to see that all oh, these outward ordinances that they're doing aren't the things that are going to save. Yeah. It's becoming something inward. So after we have the, the cleansing, as you mentioned before, Matt, there are these teaching moments where the Savior gives several parables. Are there specific ones that teach that the Lord looks inwardly on us as opposed to the outward? After cleansing the temple, Jesus gives a series of sermons in the temple courtyards that are mostly directed to the Jerusalem leadership. Uh, but the setting is such that there are thousands of pilgrims in the temple courtyards. They're watching. This is a very dynamic moment. From the uh, perspective of the leadership, this could be a very volatile moment. And so for Jesus to choose this moment to call them out on certain behaviors that he found to be unacceptable uh, is a pretty bold move and uh, definitely contributes to that increasing tension that will lead to the crucifixion by the end of the week. But as we look at these sermons, uh, and I have Matthew open, so Matthew's version of these is Matthew chapter 21, 22, and 23. He gives three specific parables where he tries to emphasize that idea of the out outward expressions of holiness versus what they actually do. And then the final sermon, Matthew 23, is a very harsh sermon where he starts calling out specific practices. Uh, Now, I do want to mention really quickly that in all of these parables and in all of these practices that Jesus is calling out, it's very easy for us to start thinking about how, uh, oh, the Jews of Jesus's day mm-hmm. uh, were like this. And I want to make sure that we we avoid that type of rhetoric, because to be sure, this entire story is Jewish. Uh, Jesus is Jewish. His followers are Jewish. The pilgrims who know nothing about Jesus, they're Jewish. The leadership, they're Jewish. So it's a thoroughly Jewish story. Uh, so rather than focusing on how these teachings might apply to a specific Jewish community, I think we quickly turn the mirror on ourselves, because the reality is, we all feel these impulses to want to show our righteousness to others. We want others to see how good we are as a member of the church or or whatever. Uh, and Jesus is here is not just telling the initial audience, but all readers, um, that's not what I'm concerned about. I'm not concerned at all about your titles, about your status, about uh, these things that are outwardly exciting uh, to those around you. What I am much more interested in is what are you doing on the inside? Uh, especially with Matthew's teaching of parable after parable after parable, we can put ourselves sometimes in the privileged position of the leadership that may be being rebuked. And how are we doing similar things? Exactly. Yeah. So what of the Savior's teachings or parables uh, can we focus on that, that point us to this second topic of the Lord looking on the heart? Well, one example that we can see is in Matthew chapter 21. And so here at the temple complex and and starting in verse 28, the savior says, but what think ye? A certain man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go to work today in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second son and said, likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father. So he sets him up. He says, so there's this first one And he came and he goes, no, I'm not going to do it. But then he went and did it. But then the second one's like, yeah, I'll do it. 
And he doesn't do it. But then he's turning, and this is one of the great things about his teachings is, well, which one did the will of his father? And all of us can ask ourselves, what, which is it? Now, the answer, they said unto him the first. Jesus saying to them, verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. Well, why does he say that? Because of the fact that maybe in their life right now, they are not following they're the Lord. No. They're saying no, but they're going to repent and they're going to do it. Whereas those, the aristocracy and those who are in, in leadership positions in the community, they're saying, oh yeah, look, I go and do I, this stuff. I outwardly, I, I do these things. And they, then they just never show up. And they never show up. And they okay. never show up. And so you get this really powerful moment of people saying, oh, well, who am I? Am I the one who says, yes, I will go and do, and then I don't do it? Or am I the one that says, no, I'm not going to do it and do it. But then the Savior leaves open a third group of those who say, yes, I will go and do it and do it. Mm-hmm. But again, those are the group he's not focusing on. Um, he's focusing on everybody else. There's so much to talk about here. One of the other parables has a very similar theme to it. Uh, the parable of the, the wedding banquet, right? This, where there's this, this wealthy uh, landowner who wants to celebrate the wedding banquet of his son. So he sends out all of these invitations to his rich and wealthy friends, uh, but none of them show up. Uh, the, the very group that we would expect would fill that banquet hall are the very ones who kind of blow off the invitation. It's there he's sitting with this prepared feast. He said, well, I'm going to fill this banquet hall. So go out into the alleyways and the gutters and just go get anybody, get the lame and the blind and the beggars. We're going to fill this hall. And Jesus says, the kingdom of God that I'm proclaiming is going to be like that. It's going to be a hall filled with those who you would not expect based on earthly standards, because those often don't show up. It's going to be the ones who who had that humility, who had that repentance, who, who had that desperate need for God's grace in their lives. They're the ones who show up and fill that banquet hall. And so again, all of this is just setting up that tension between him and the Jerusalem leadership in ways that are very direct, very provocative, but also lend themselves to a lot of really important modern self-reflection in terms of do, when do I do those things? Because we all do them. Mm-hmm. So just identifying when we do them, how we do them, and trying to focus on, as Jesus says, the weightier matters of love, mercy, and faith, rather than those outward expressions of righteousness, I think is the main theme of this text. I would love to hear from our audience. How do you avoid focusing on the outward appearance of someone, but really looking on their heart? Ashley. Yeah, I have to listen to the Spirit a lot. I think the Spirit speaks to me in letting me know how Jesus loves other people. And I have to remember also that I'm a daughter of God and everybody else are children of God. And when I think about that, that allows me to look inside and rather than, you know, the outward appearance, but to feel who they are and what their potential is and what they mean to Heavenly Father and Jesus Christ. And Ashley, how does the Holy Ghost speak to you in those moments? Yeah, I feel like in a way I feel God's love for those people in a way that is not my everyday. I really do feel a special, almost a special love for these people that wasn't there before. It's really neat. I love it. And that's what's beautiful about what Christ does is he really allows us to be able to love somebody in a manner that becomes a natural thing. So as we're focusing on this second topic of of looking on the heart as opposed to focusing on the outward appearance, what are some of the things that, that you do to really try not to focus on someone's outward appearance, but as the Savior teaches us to focus on the heart? 
Yeah, absolutely. Everyone's got things that they're wrestling with that they're trying to work through, whether it be family issues or personal issues or things from their past. And uh, I, I think that it's important to try to keep that in mind, that no matter what you see on the outside, at the end of the day, this is a human being or a child of God who is struggling with deep stuff. And you don't always mm -hmm. see the deep things that they're wrestling with. So I think just assuming, just as a default position that, that this person is wrestling with some things, I think just engenders a lot more compassion and a lot more mercy. And it's like, yeah, that was a hurtful thing to do or say, but uh, I'm just gonna give you the benefit of the doubt, um, which obviously in most, in some cases, you, you know, it's obviously more complex than that. But I think just, just as a general rule, just assuming the best of others and assuming that they're struggling with things that, that may come out in different ways, I think can help orient us in this way. And the Savior gives so many examples of that. Uh, thank you so much for, for sharing your thoughts and your insights on our second topic of how the Lord does not judge on the outward appearance, but judges us on the desires of our heart. And for the audience, thank you so much for, for being here today and for sharing your thoughts and just your goodness with us. And for those at home, we still have so much to cover in footnotes, so please stay with us. I think the Spirit communicates with different people in different ways. And so no one way is the right way or mutually exclusive to others. In my personal life, there are moments where I feel certain emotions with the Spirit, that is true. And uh, but I think in my own personal life, the way I tend to feel the Spirit the most is actually through study. Uh, as I continue to learn about the scriptures, I continue to learn about the teachings of Jesus in their historical context. It has a way to, of opening up my mind and my soul in a way that just makes me a better person and helps me to see the world more clearly and help me to try to see others with more compassion than I would otherwise. And so I feel that that study and faith combination that Joe Smith talked about uh, is one of the most powerful ways that I personally feel the Spirit in my life. Welcome to Come Follow Up Footnotes. We've dismissed our studio audience and are looking forward to building upon our previous discussions from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John with Josh and Matt. Okay, so in our previous section, uh, Matt, you had told us about these four elements of the triumphal entry. Do you mind starting off there and kind of teaching us a few things? Sure. No, that's a really fantastic story. The way that Jesus deliberately stages his entry into Jerusalem was itself extremely significant and symbolic in that first century Jewish culture. And as you unpack the story, there seems to be four major elements that he incorporates into that victory parade or triumphal procession over the Mount of Olives. And all of those elements come from either the Old Testament or earlier stories within the Jewish community that connected with kingship, coronation, uh, or victory over God's enemies or over Israel's enemies. And so I, th I thought it'd be interesting just to quickly identify a few of those elements and show where exactly they come from. So as we're reading the triumphal entry story in the New Testament Gospels, we can see the confluence of symbolism and scripture that goes into that. The primary symbol of the triumphal entry is Jesus getting on a donkey and riding in this, basically a parade or a procession over the Mount of Olives into Jerusalem. And the donkey itself is extremely significant in the history of ancient Israel, precisely because riding a donkey seems to have been part of the ancient Israelite coronation ceremony for previous kings. A second element that I think is really interesting to note is the spreading out of garments. So in the triumphal entry, after Jesus gets on the donkey, several of his followers take their garments and spread them out along the path as part of this procession. And that is another gesture that comes from Old Testament kingship stories. Uh, in particular, this one comes from 2 Kings chapter 9, verses 1 through 13, where the prophet Elisha had just anointed a man named Yehu to be king over Israel. 
in a way that he hoped would overthrow the previous Omri dynasty. And so as anointing Yehu as king, the followers then spread their garments in the way and shouted kingship acclamations for Yehu as well. And in that case, it's a pretty provocative kingship episode because it's Elisha anointing someone to be king to overthrow the current regime. And so when we're thinking about Jesus going into Jerusalem, proclaiming his kingdom, remember Jesus's kingdom only comes at the expense of what's currently going on politically. And so between the donkey evoking Solomon and the spreading out of the garments evoking that Yehu story from Elisha, uh, those are two very powerful kingship images, but also powerful statements of one kingdom is ready to displace another. And uh, I think that by deliberately evoking these Old Testament and early Jewish images, I think that's Jesus's way of, of coming into Jerusalem and, uh, and making his statement loud and clear in a way that would be recognizable. Can we read some of the account of the actual triumphal entry as we talk about these other two elements? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, picking up, uh, so we get the, the donkey in Matthew chapter 21, 5, 6, and 7. Uh, and then in verse 8, and a very great multitude spread their garments in the way. Others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. This is another story that goes back to early Jewish history. In this case, we get a very similar episode with a victory parade held by a Maccabean king named Simon the Maccabee, uh, that after years of struggling against the Greeks, these foreign oppressors who they, who the Maccabees believed were, were oppressing Judea, uh, the Maccabean forces oust those Greek rulers and set up an independent Jewish state called the Hasmonean dynasty. This is only about 100 and 20, 30 years before Jesus. And as part of the celebration of Simon the Maccabee uh, removing Greek rule and liberating Jerusalem from that Greek oversight, uh, they held a victory parade where Simon the Maccabee's followers waved palm branches and shouted acclamations of kingship and victory over God's that's enemies cool. and so forth. So that's another story that would have very much resonated with an early Jewish audience. So between the donkey, the spreading of the garments, and now we're like, you know, welcoming in Simon the Maccabee. Uh, there's a lot about this episode that leans towards coronation and victory parades. Uh, I don't know if you have any follow-up thoughts on that. Well, I would I would just say the other thing that palm leaves uh, bring to mind is the festival of Sukkot oh, sure. or of tabernacles, that palm leaves were part of that tradition. You would cut down palm leaves to use to build your tent or your Sukkot. Uh, and so I also like to think of that idea of deliverance mm. because their Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles is a remembrance of being guided in the wilderness for the children of Israel. And so this, this idea of them coming and, and going back to, to John 12, it says, took branches of palm trees and went forth to meet him. But I do love that we can also see it in other festivals and other celebrations. And so it's not just a, a coronation celebration, but also connected to this other festival that the Jews would have been familiar with. Yeah, absolutely. And then, of course, the final element of this are the shouts of Hosanna, right? This Hebrew phrase that means save us that comes from Psalm 118, Psalm that's traditionally associated with the Passover, which is the festival that this particular group of pilgrims are coming to celebrate in the coming week. That's the setting for the last week of Jesus's life in Jerusalem. And as one of those Passover Psalms is Psalm 118, which does shout, Hosanna, save us, meaning this, this cry for God to deliver Israel from their current occupiers or their current oppressors. And so you take all of these images together and Jesus is making a pretty deliberate and very provocative statement that he's king, it's a victory, it's ousting the current regime mm -hmm. for a coming kingdom. And as again, as believers, 
our natural reading of this is to rejoice along with Jesus. And yeah, we want to proclaim Jesus to be king as well. And we want to shout Hosanna. And that is very much a powerful reading uh, for Christians. But don't forget that for those who were not followers of Jesus, these were pretty provocative actions that were setting Jesus's group and the local authorities on a collision course that would mm -hmm. only intensify and culminate with the cross at the end of the week. And, and to add to what Matt's saying, when we read Psalm 118, uh, somebody may be out there flipping right now and going, wait, I don't see Hosanna. And it's because of the fact that it's in the Hebrew text. It's okay. this idea of praising. So where you see praise, those are the hosannas. Uh, and so the, it's the halal uh, or these praise psalms. One ex example we have here is Psalm 118, verse 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I will go into them and I will praise the Lord. Verse 20, this gate of the Lord into which the righteous shall enter. And then again in 21, I will praise thee for thou hast heard me and art become my salvation. An interesting quote that is actually gonna be pulled out at other times in the gospels. The stone which the builders refused has become the headstone mm. of the corner. We see this as, as a messianic psalm, but of praise and of foreshadowing to the fact that Jesus is being rejected by this aristocracy, being rejected by the leadership, but he is going to become the headstone of the corner, the cornerstone yeah. of the kingdom of God. And I'll just follow that up by saying that the, the next few verses, especially verses 25 and 26 of Psalm 118, yeah. are the direct verses that are quoted in the Hosanna shout, right? So in Psalm 118, verse 25, save now, right? That's your... Hosanna, Hosanna, right? If you save us now, O Lord, I beseech you and send now prosperity. And then it goes on. Blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you out of the house of the Lord. And those seem to be the direct verses from Psalm 118 that are actually shouted in the triumphal entry. So as we move from the triumphal entry into uh, now the, the cleansing of the temple, there are a lot of elements from, from this narrative that uh, we can go a little bit deeper on, uh, specifically when it comes to the temple economy, the money changers, what sort of information can can you add to, to this part of the story that can increase our understanding of what's going on? Yeah, maybe just to set the context, uh, I don't know about those who are watching, but uh, when I read Money Changers, I just simply thought transactions. Mm. Uh, and so I- uh, Like selling goods. Like selling and goods and, and exchanging money, right? Yeah. Here's what I paid, here's my, here's my change. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's not what's happening here. Uh, in the, the setup of the temple, uh, people who traveled a certain distance weren't required to bring their own sacrifice. And so what they would do is they would come to the temple and purchase their sacrificial doves or goats or lambs or, or whatever, and they would come and purchase them at the temple. Could they bring their own or did? They could, okay. and depending on the sources, uh, some early Jewish sources gave a parameter. If you live within a certain radius, you're expected to bring your okay. own. But if you're traveling from outside of that radius, and especially for a holiday like Passover, mm -hmm. this is a pilgrimage holiday. The Jewish people, especially the Jewish males, are expected to be in Jerusalem if it's feasible. Okay. And so they're traveling from all over, wherever these, these Jews may be. And keep in mind, that could be a large distance yeah. given the diaspora. Right. We know there's Jews in Egypt. We know that there's Jews in Asia Minor. Uh, and so you could have people traveling from all over this, this region. And so when they would come, they would go to the temple and there would be these money changers who you would bring your money and you would exchange it for a Tyrrhenian coin. And that was the coin that you would then purchase your sacrifice for. And so you're exchanging your currency. It's almost like an exchange. From wherever you come, you, yep. okay. 
in there. But the problem was, is some of these money changers were putting a little bit extra on top to put in their own pockets. Okay. So here's our expenses to run the temple, but then we want to put this on for ourselves. And that seems to be what the Savior's taking issue with. Yeah, and this is one area where, uh, as an archaeologist, it's a lot of fun to go to Jerusalem and look at archaeological remains that can illustrate some of the very issues that you're describing. So, for example, uh, in starting in the 1960s, excavations were done in the modern Jewish quarter of the old city. And those uh, excavations actually revealed the first century mansions of the families that helped administer the temple. In other words, the wealthy aristocratic uh, Jewish elite, the, era, the Romanized aristocracy, we excavated their homes. We, wow. we now understand how they lived. We understand the type of lifestyle, the, uh, the luxuries and the Roman amenities. I mean, these um, families are living extremely well. These are the very families who are administering the temple and who are issuing licenses to money changers and sacrificial animal dealers and so forth. And I mentioned those excavation remains because that serves as a really powerful illustration of what Jesus and his Galilean followers, coming from a very lower working class context, what they're encountering when they come into Jerusalem, they're seeing how the priestly establishment is living uh, in this, these very wealthy Romanized mansions. And when you understand the revenues that went into that lifestyle, you understand that number one, it was tithing. So mm -hmm. uh, tithing in first century Judaism goes to the priestly families. That's by Pentateuchal or Torah law, uh, but also it was the temple economy. And so the type of money exchange where the pilgrim will lose out on the exchange rate, that seems to have uh, supported the lifestyle of the Jewish aristocracy. The extra surcharges that might have been on the sacrificial animals that you're selling to these Galilean pilgrims, that seems to have also gone to the priestly families. And so when you see how they're living and you see the type of message that Jesus is proclaiming, uh, a message of the poor and the marginalized and the outcast, the disparity is pretty yeah. remarkable. And so when Jesus sees the type of temple economic activity taking place, especially within the courtyards of the temple, that seems to be a breaking point for Jesus where he decides to make a very public demonstration of how he considers that to be completely unacceptable. You are here to administer God's house, but yet through these economic practices, you're actually exploiting the poor and adding burdens to those lower class worshipers uh, that they can't bear. And Jesus found that completely unacceptable. So that seems to be the, the political, social, and economic context for this episode, which might not be as clear if you're reading it without that background. And, and to go with that, it's fascinating that these are the people in charge of the temple, but then the Savior in Matthew 21, 13, he says, and he said unto them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. This is the Savior coming and saying, I'm taking back what I established. Mm -hmm. Remember, Jesus is the mortal of the pre-mortal Jehovah. Mm -hmm. And so he was the one who originally instituted the practices and the law. And it has now been given to this elite and he's coming to take it back. Yeah, and that's actually a really important point too, is to recognize that some of these are just practical necessities. I mean, you, they needed to get animals and tithing was an Old Testament law. And so, so it's not like the fact that these things were happening were in themselves inherently bad, but there seems to have been something about the way that they were being implemented in this first century context that Jesus found to be crossing the line and that motivated the statement he felt he needed to make. And I've heard a lot uh, said about verse 12, specifically with the, the reaction, the behavior of Jesus. And I, I would love to get some of your thoughts. In verse 12, he says, and Jesus went into the temple of God and cast out all them 
that sold and bought in the temple and overthrew the tables of the money changers and the seats of them that sold doves. We can get this image sometimes of this angry person just going and just wreaking havoc. And, and I know there has been a lot spoken about this specific thing. What are some of your thoughts on, on, on the behavior of Jesus at this moment? Well, I think part of it is that we're seeing uh, someone who's trying to take back. And there's been other invitations. Uh, I mean, even just the fact of the triumphal entry is uh, it wasn't uncommon to end near the temple. Uh, in ancient times, often when you'd be coronated, you'd go to the temple yeah. and do sacrifices. And so it's very natural for the, that, that procession to lead across the Kidron Valley up um, the Temple Mount and go into the temple. And so that natural flow, but then to come in and then maybe see in disarray saying, okay, enough is enough. And the Savior, as you were speaking, Matt, I couldn't help but think he was from a poor family in Galilee who maybe was taken advantage of by these money right. changers. Right. And I can't think if somebody took advantage of my parents, how I wouldn't maybe want to say, you know what? Yeah. I'm done. I'm done. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just think it's great to actually see Jesus with a personality here. Because, <laughs> you know, in traditional art and traditional Jesus films, we're just used to depicting Jesus as if there is no emotion, there's yeah. no personality. I think our, our sense of reverence has forced us to treat Jesus in a way that is above personality. But scripturally, that's not the case at all. Throughout these scriptural stories, we're seeing a Jesus who's passionate, who's dynamic, who's emotional, who's loving and caring, but who also gets frustrated and who weeps and uh, who's just very engaging and dynamic. There's a reason why people would leave things to follow him or see him as such a threat he needed to be removed. And it had to do, I think, a lot with that dynamic personality. And we're seeing that come out right here where we're seeing, I don't know if anger or righteous anger, however you want to frame that. Uh, but the reality, indignation, <laughs> but the reality is he's ticked and he wants to make a statement and he does. And it's not a calm statement. It's not Jesus carefully moving tables and calmly, you know, <laughs> citing scripture. You have turned my house into a heart. Right? That's not Jesus. It's Jesus is throwing the table and he's shouting out verses from Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah chapter seven in ways that are clearly making a scene, which is exactly his point. So when you, when you explain that, it's, it's, it, you, can, you can sense the excitement as we For get sure. to learn more about his personality. So from, from your perspectives, uh, what does that teach you on a personal level about Christ and his personality when you get to see that emotion that, that if we're not careful, sometimes we can miss, you know, like you said, through this experience of the temple, through, you know, weeping at the death of Lazarus. Uh, so how does that help your own personal understanding of him and, and strengthen that relationship, knowing that he had some of these human yeah. emotional elements about him. Well, I think in the next couple of verses, it's it's fascinating in verse 12 and 13, we get that indignation, but then look at verse uh, 14 in Matthew 21, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed mm -hmm. them. So here's indignation Jesus, Mm -hmm. And then the very next thing we hear is that the blind and the lame are coming to him. Now, we might see that and go, oh, that's a great dichotomy. But what's, for me, an interesting point is that according to the Old Testament, right. blind and lame individuals were not allowed into the temple. They were excluded. And they were excluded on the margin. And so the expectation would be if Jesus is getting mad about this, what is he going to do about blind and lame individuals being in the temple? And the answer is he's going to treat them with compassion because of judging them that's by right. their hearts and not by wow. their outward appearance. Yeah, that's right. And so that's he, cool. he, he focuses his indignation where it needs to go, but he doesn't let that extend into other areas in his life. Wow, I didn't mean to get emotional, but um, 
I think about that, that sometimes I just picture a savior who, if I've done something wrong, that he's gonna be mad at me. Mm-hmm. And that he's gonna, he's gonna always view me in that wrong light. He's never gonna let me move on beyond that. If I'm a scribe or a Pharisee or one of these elites that he's talking about, he's only gonna view me that way. Yeah. And what this is saying is, no, I may tell you to change something, but when your heart is right and when you're in the right place, I'm going to heal you. Yeah, I love that. Cause it seems like the indignation of this episode is focused on uh, his, the exploitation of the poor, right? And in the move, in the direction towards inclusivity. So it's not other words, not only am I going to make a statement that criticizes what I see as your exploitation of the poor, but also watch this. And then the very next move is, let me make this inclusive step in a way that, that really breaches traditional boundaries. It says, I'm going to bring these people who are traditionally excluded from temple space. I'm going to bring them right in and heal them. And I love how the tension uh, builds in verse 15 when the chief priests, the administrators of the temple, who are the target of the criticism, when they saw what wonderful things Jesus did, that's always a fun King James translation because to us, they seem very wonderful. To the chief priests, these events probably didn't seem too too hot. Um, But when they saw the things that Jesus did, and then they saw the children crying in the temple saying, Hosanna to the son of David, they were sore displeased uh, because Jesus is not only criticizing them openly, physically attacking the temple economy, but now making moves towards an inclusivity that does not adhere to the traditional boundary maintenance of the temple complex in the first century. And he had to clear the temple out first to allow that to happen. Mm -hmm. Because if he hadn't cleared out the money changers, if he hadn't thrown over the tables, somebody would have stopped these blind and lame from getting into the temple. Mm -hmm. And so I love the idea of the savior opening a way for that inclusion of those yeah. on the margin. Okay, so uh, <laughs> I've loved this. You guys are so, you're both so smart and I love learning from you and, and all these different aspects of, of this narrative uh, from these different chapters. Um, I wanna end with uh, getting both of your answers to a question that Jesus asks to uh, the Pharisees right after he gives them uh, the first two commandments. And if you go to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 42, he asked the question, what think ye of Christ? From all the study, all the research that you've done, and we're gonna pull that question out of context a little bit and just make it a little, uh, personalize it. From, from all the study you've done throughout uh, both of your careers, uh, you've dedicated so much of your lives uh, to studying about uh, Jesus and his life and his teachings. So I wanna end with, with that question to both of you. We'll start with Josh. What think ye of Christ? I think, and ultimately this is the entire purpose of the gospels. Uh, I love uh, the, the thesis that's given in John chapter 20 about why the gospels are written. And so here in John chapter 20, verse 31, uh, the author of the fourth gospel says, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing ye might have faith through his name. So what do I think of Christ? Uh, I think of Christ and of these narratives and everything that we've, we've read here in the Gospels as a means of me to believe in Christ. Uh, this is not an end point. Uh, I'm not just supposed to read the Gospels and say, I know everything I know about Jesus. I'm supposed to read the Gospels to believe in Christ and then in my personal life, find a way in which I can draw closer to him. The Gospels are not written to just be an end all. It's the, the purpose of the gospels is to invite me to have a personal relationship with Christ. So what do I think of Christ? I think of Christ as a personal friend in this day 
who I can come to know, who I can associate with, and who I can lean on throughout my life because he did that for others in the scriptures. Thanks, Josh. Yeah, that's Man. really great. Uh, no, there's so much to, to, to consider with this. Such a great response. Um, going back to the original verse, so we're back here in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, saying, so what do you think of the Messiah, right? Because, of course, mm-hmm. Christos is a, the Greek for the Messiah, right? So what do you guys think the Messiah is supposed to be? And they say, well, the Messiah is supposed to be the son of David, right? So I think it's fascinating that Jesus asked them, well, who do you think Messiah is? And the go-to response is a very traditional understanding of what the Jewish Messiah was supposed to be. He's supposed to be a royal figure who's going to oust Israel's enemies and reestablish the kingdom of Israel in a very triumphant, glorious, maybe militaristic way, as had been done with anointed figures or Davidic kings in the past. And so I'm, I'm fascinated by this exchange because they do believe in a Messiah, right. but they this particular group who's responding has a very traditional view of what the Messiah was supposed to be, and the Messiah needed to fit in that box for them, and Jesus didn't fit in to that yeah. box. Um, and so one of the things that I love about being able to study New Testament on a regular basis, teach it in a university classroom, and even excavate the world of the New Testament as an archaeologist is the fact that I am constantly reminded to not try to put Messiah into a box, right? Because I think a lot of times uh, we just, we have the way that we view Jesus, the way his temperament was, his personality, his persona, and we just kind of create that box for him and we want to fit him in there. In there, But I think what we'll find is a deep reading of scripture and an ex- exploration of the world of Jesus helps us to realize that he does not easily fit into the boxes that we create for himself. Mm-hmm. So I'm constantly excited and amazed and inspired and touched um, by the ways in which he does not fit into my preconceived notions of who he was supposed to be. Um, earlier example of seeing Jesus with passion and a dynamic personality. Well, that, that wasn't in an earlier version of my box for Jesus, but the scriptures clearly show that. Or uh, the ways in which Jesus challenges me to be better uh, than I am. There are sayings of Jesus that scholars sometimes call the hard sayings of Jesus, sayings where Jesus is pretty uh, critical of things that are very common in our lifestyles, right? We're very wealthy. We come from a fairly, fairly wealthy background, relatively speaking, um, Jesus is critical of a lot of that. And rather than blow off those teachings and kind of blow past them, uh, actually allowing those teachings to to change me and to exp- mm-hmm. how can I actually be better? How can I actually do more of what Jesus is saying in regards to the poor or the underprivileged or the marginalized? And so I just love the fact that this exchange reminds us that, that we should not try to put Jesus into that box, but let's continued scripture study and exploration of the biblical world. Um, teach us who Jesus really was and what actually mattered to him, and then conform our expectations and our lifestyle to that rather than the opposite. Well, what a wonderful discussion this has been. Thank you both so much for sharing your your thoughts, your insights today. And for those at home, thanks for joining us for this discussion from these selections from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I encourage you to record and act upon any impressions you've received. For additional study and teaching resources, visit byutv.org slash comefollowup. Join us next week as we explore the second coming of Jesus Christ through various passages in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Joseph Smith, Matthew. Thank you for watching. Come Follow Up is a production of BYU Broadcasting. 